Welcome, everyone, to the May 3rd episode of the New York Sports Podcast Roundup. You got Chris and Jim here, and we are talking NFL draft uh, to start. We are going to talk a little bit about Giants and the Jets. Uh, Before we do that, though, we want to give a shout out and welcome to all of our new listeners and new subscribers. We really appreciate you guys. Thanks for for tuning in and listening to us. Um, also, a little later in the in the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, whatever the hell is going on with the Mets trying to sell the team and why that seems to be stuck in the mud and whether or not we're going to have an NBA season. But as I said, we're going to kick it off with the NFL draft, and we're going to start with, with the logistics sides of things. I, I really was worried about the draft because – I was thinking that all these guys virtually and general managers virtually was ripe for opportunity for for fuck ups, but I have to say I thought it I thought it went pretty well. Were you were you surprised at uh, at how well it went, Jim? I guess it depends on how you you know look at it well, right? So I know there was a lot of talk and a lot of frustration and I guess disappointment. I don't know what word you would use there, but um, around the whole, you know, well, this guy's uncle died and this guy's father has cancer and this guy's mother left. And it's, it was a little too much. Um, you know, it's, and I, it's, I mean, I think they're trying to humanize all these players. They're trying to bring the NFL draft down to the level of what's going on in, in today's society, which, you know, whether or not you agree with that, I mean, at the end of the day, people look to sports to kind of get away from that, not to embrace it. Um, but I thought as far as, technology was concerned yes you're right i thought um they did a nice mix of the studio slash uh you know people at their houses i thought it was pretty cool to get a glimpse of some of the general managers in their homes i thought um i thought belichick was funny you know sometimes you don't see his human side so i, I like that um you know I, I liked a lot of the uh, interviews they did, a lot of the back and forth. I thought the, I thought setting the players up in like Airbnbs, I mean, you could tell, right? Like half the players, you know, these guys come from poor families. So to set them up in like, you know, um, nicer houses and stage that was good. It, it kind of brought everybody to the same, to the same light. So I thought all in all, they, they did that really well. The execution went pretty well. Um, again, I thought the only sour spot on the whole thing was the fact that they had to really pull the heartstrings of the audience, which I didn't think was needed. I thought people would tune in. You know, I thought people would have tuned in more for just the breakdown of football. I thought people really missed sports breakdown. I thought they kind of missed an opportunity there to do more of that. Yeah, I think that I totally agree with that. I thought that the, I, I hate the human interest stories anyway, right? I'm, I'm watching the draft. I just want to see the picks. I want to see the football analysis. Like, I feel great for the kid that his dad overcame cancer, but honestly, that's not why I'm there. I'm not there for the human interest story, so that was overdone. But when I say I was happy with how it went logistically, I'm talking about all the picks seemed to get in without any problem. They never had to, like, slow it down or take a break to walk anything back. Goodell didn't announce the wrong thing from any of the, you know, for any of the picks and have to be like, oh, actually, it was this other uh, guy who they meant to draft. There weren't as many trades, I didn't think, but the trades that that happened, you know, got done. They got called into the league office. There, there didn't seem to be, 
you know, much in the way of controversy. I know Bill O'Brien and the Texans felt like they had a trade done that, that um, didn't get done, but, but that wasn't a res- as a result of, you know, the technology that can happen in, in any year. So just in terms of like logistics of getting the pick submitted, getting the trade submitted, getting the guys drafted, I thought went a lot more smoothly than I expected. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think you caught probably Goodell a couple of times on a hot mic. Again, it's live TV. It's going to happen. Um, I thought, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, the picks getting in on time was very, very impressive, especially when you heard so many stories coming out like a day or two before of uh, all of these stress tests were going poorly. Uh, you know, they couldn't figure out. They had to bring IT guys in. I th- And I think, I don't know if the NFL just dispatched you know, a hundred IT guys to everybody's house. It seemed like there was some random people. I know there was a story about, uh, I think Gettleman, right? Where there was an IT person in his house that um, was there just to make sure everything went, went well. So I don't know if that's came from the, I'm, I'm assuming that came from each organization and not, you know, the NFL New York office, but I, I thought it went really well. And I thought, um, again, and we're talking about phones, right? So I, I don't think they're going to screw up a GM calling a coach, calling scouts that probably won't be screwed up um, in, in any draft. But as far as the internet, I mean, you have to trust, who knows, you could have any internet provider out there. You have to trust that they're not going to throttle your network. You have to trust that you have enough bandwidth. Um, so yeah, from that standpoint, you're right. It went, it went hundred percent perfect. Really. Yeah. You got to trust all those things. And you have to remember back, I guess it's, it's a, it's a number of years right now, but you remember when the, I think it was the Vikings couldn't get their pick in and like people were picking in front of them, you know, cause they, they didn't get it in by the time. So even when people are like live, the, there's opportunities to screw everything up and, and, you know, there's a clock on these things, you know, and, and I was surprised, pleasantly surprised that there wasn't a single opportunity where they were like, you know what, we need more time. We're going to have to shut this down for a few minutes while we, while we get our act together. I thought, I thought, you know, that was great. I was also uh, pretty pleased with the behind-the-scenes look at the GMs and their kids. I thought that was really cool. Um, I'm disappointed to say that I think that Jerry Jones had the coolest setup of anybody on his quarter-billion-dollar yacht. Uh, obviously, I'm a Giants fan, um, so, you know, that that's kind of annoying. Uh, but and, and I was also disappointed I didn't get to see Abby the dog, Joe Judge's dog, who participated in all the pre-draft uh, scouting processes. So, so that was a little disappointing. Other than that, I thought it went, I thought it went really well. And I have to tell you, for the first time in a very long time, I came away from the draft pretty happy with both uh, the Giants and the draft and the Jets overall draft class. I can't remember the last time that fucking happened. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, I mean that's and, and it went. You're right. It went, I think, really well. I think this was a year too where there weren't many flash picks. You know, this it's every year you kind of get a few that, um, you know, are in the top fifteen in the draft. And that's you know, unfortunately, in the past few years, that's where the Giants and Jets usually are at as far as drafting. Um, and you usually have a couple of guys sitting there that are, you know, well, they have some question marks, but man, they can. I mean, look at these guys. And, and there weren't really that many of those in the top 15 and, and really throughout the draft. And I agree. I think both teams did an extraordinary job. Um, kind of going back to what you were saying, too, about 
you know, I, I thought, I thought each GM slash coach with their immediate family was kind of set up a little bit too much. Um, that would be my only criticism besides the, I, I really think the whole theme of the draft was about family was about kind of uh, not depress people, but bring everybody down to sort of like a, well, look guys, we're doing this because we want to get the football season this year. I want to get it done, but we understand where everybody's coming from. And look, these, these guys deal with stuff too. And I, there was a lot of that. I mean, yeah, it, it's you kind of telling when you look that that stuff is all bullshit. I mean, we're heartless yeah. guys, but we didn't want to see that. No, and you look at the Cardinals uh, coach, um, forgetting his name now, but yeah, he's sitting in his million dollar mansion. I mean, that's what that's what I want to see, right? We're I, I want to see, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, come awesome. on, like, like even McVay is sitting there too, and like, I was just waiting for a stripper to come out or like a you know, <laughs> just like a, a few girls just walk out, like, because I thought he would have made fun of the whole thing because it seemed like that was happening. It seemed like the kids were sitting there almost under duress and they were like can we go now like what like it has a pick been made so i think that kind of stuff is all right let's get the hell up. let's get that over with yeah i, I can't it would have been great to see a stripper come walking out of a bedroom like like blowing a little coke off her nose you know dusting it off <laughs> get that I mean, do, in the background do, of the draft i thought it would have happened i mean the guy's quarantined he would assume that you know maybe something's going on back there but who knows, who knows? all right let's talk let's talk about the picks and, and we'll go we'll just bounce back and forth we'll do we'll do the first rounders and then the second rounders and and we'll go down the line a little bit. Obviously, we're not going to have time, and, and I don't want to go through all, all seven rounds. Most of the guys at the back end of the draft are just going to be, you know, special teams, potential players anyway, depth signings. But start with the Giants' first rounder, Andrew Thomas. So before the draft, I told you that, that I had Jedrick Wills as the top offensive lineman in the draft, top offensive tackle in the draft. Um, that, that remained true in the lead up to the, to the draft. And then I had Thomas and, uh, Becton kind of, uh, in that, in that next, uh, rung. And then I had worse, uh, fourth. So that was, that was how I had them ordered. The Giants went with Thomas. The Jets went with Becton. I, I like the Thomas pick. I, I was not disappointed that they didn't come away or they didn't pick Jedrick Wills. You know, as I thought about it. The, the good thing about Thomas is he's got experience at left tackle, which Wills doesn't have. So that's the first thing in my mind is if you're drafting a guy four overall, he's got to be a franchise left tackle if he's a tackle. So the fact that, that Jedrick Wills' experience was really on the right side, um, I think is what, what pushed it over the edge to, to Thomas. And then secondly, you know, Brian Burns is the running back coach of the Giants. He just came from, from Alabama, so he had a lot of experience with Jedrick. And if, if he was really pounding the table for him, you got to think that the gentleman and judge would have paid pretty good attention to that. So the fact that, that that either didn't happen or they just felt comfortable with, with Thomas on the left side, I totally get it. I totally understand it. And for the first time in a long time, I was kind of not disappointed that, you know, who I thought was the top player at the position wasn't their top pick. Um, how did you feel about those four offensive tackles? And how did you feel about the, the Jets coming away with Mr. Uh, Mr. Crack Dealer, uh, failed drug test, uh, Mekhi Becton? So, yeah, I mean, I think we we're all both on the same page with our pre-draft analysis. You know, I think the Giants, ultimately the Giants will be judged by – 
picking the first offensive lineman. I mean, if there's something you really can't do anything about that. Um, I think what Gettleman did this draft should make you pretty comfortable that Andrew Thomas should be a good player. Hopefully will be your franchise left tackle for the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and I feel the same way about Mackay Becton. You know, I think it's ultimately telling that Joe, that Douglas, Joe Douglas um, probably evaluated Jedrick Wills and Mackay Becton the same, being that when the Cardinals were on the clock, the Jets did have an accepted trade with the Jaguars. Um, be, you know, see, I guess waiting until the Cardinals made the pick when they went with Isaiah Simmons, um, obviously the Jets pulled back because they knew the Jaguars were going to go with a cornerback at that point. So um, I think Douglas was very comfortable with either going with Wills and Beckton. I feel like, so I, I saw some of Joe Thomas, the former Cleveland Browns tackle, some of his analysis, he had Beckton as one, a Wills as one B and Andrew Thomas as one C. I feel like that's probably the best way you can look at it. They're all probably on the same rung. I would assume um, as far as offensive tackles, you know, I didn't know that Tristan Werps was being rated as a guard by a lot of scouts. I knew that he was probably third or fourth on that list, but um, I guess his short arms and the fact that, you know, he's not that comfortable playing tackle with some of his interviews that came out after the draft um, that pushed him down the list. But again, he's going to Tampa who is ready, who is trying to build a pretty good offensive line as it is. But yeah, I, I think that both teams came out of it pretty well. I think you 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 definitely if you if you're an offensive line hungry team if you're starving for linemen, um, getting one of the four w- wasn't going to kill you, in my opinion. Yeah. Now again, five years from now we'll reevaluate, but they're all pretty I think close. from they're all close. So if anybody comes out of this like the next you know Tony Baselli, well that nobody knew that, right? You know, so you you had to, you have to call, you have to look at it as face value and. All four tackles very close, and all four, all four tackles were taken in the first thirteen picks. It just became it just became personal preference. I mean, I mean, it became personal preference for the Giants. I mean, obviously, when the when the Jets went to pick, you know, there were there were people off the board, so they had less of a personal preference. But I still think they were probably very happy just to get you know one of the the top three guys. I, I agree that I think as the process wore on. I sort of was the least comfortable with, with Tristan Wurst because I do think he might project as a guard um, a little, you know, definitely more than, than the other three. Are you at all worried about this, this back and failed drug test? Are you worried that he's going to be selling state secrets for smack or, or for playbook notes or anything like that? No, I am worried that he has an addi- addictive personality. Um, it's coming out that, so on Instagram, I guess his girlfriend basically said he's battling addiction. We don't know what that means. Obviously, he failed a drug test. We do know his family has an issue with um, food addiction, which we obviously don't want out of our offensive linemen. Um, so I would, I get nervous about the addiction stuff. Now, not knowing what the drug test was, I have faith in our general manager that he vetted all that before he picked this person. And, and look, and, and again, I know, look, all right, yeah, we're the Jets, 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 but um, this is, you have to have faith in the first year GM, right? I and mean, he's trying to build a new culture. Well, I, as we go through this draft, um, you're going to notice a, a trend as Jets fans listen to this podcast, even Giants fans. You know, I think Douglas went into this looking at guys with good backgrounds, um, good attitudes, captains of their teams, captains of their schools, and people who generally want, to build a an environment of you know hard work, determination, and winning. You know, so I think that 
Becton fits that mold from all things considered. Um, and you just hope he gets over whatever demons he has he's facing right now. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you like your first-round picks to be clean. That's that's the only sort of nitpick I, I have as to – I mean, I, I think it was it was a fine pick. Um, you know, it was, to me, between an offensive tackle and a wide receiver at that spot. And, and I get it. There was only, you know, three or depending on how you look at it, four offensive tackles. It was a deep wide receiver class. So you decide to go offensive tackle. And, and you take that guy, but you're right. There's, you know, there's concerns about his weight. Is he going to be able to, to, to keep the weight off? There's, there's concerns about, you know, the failed, the failed drug test. And I think, I think Joe Douglas is a good GM. I think he probably did his due diligence. So obviously he was comfortable with it, but, but, you know, when I'm thinking about a first round pick, I guess if I was going to, if I was going to hang an asterisk on anything or a footnote on anything, it would be, you know, let's see how, how that turns out with, with back then. Um, I thought where the Giants and the Jets both really shined was the second round, actually. I mean, the first 15 picks of the draft, I thought, unfolded kind of to, kind of the script, pretty much what a lot of the mock drafts basically had. Um, but, but I thought the second round is where, is where they, they really both did well. Start with the Giants and Xavier McKinney, safety out of Alabama. I had this guy mocked as a first-rounder, solid first-rounder. I had him at 23 to the Eagles. So for him to fall all the way into the second round, uh, I look at that as two first-round talents that the Giants picked up, right? So, so I'm really, really happy with, with that pick. I'm happy that he didn't go to the Eagles, uh, who, you know, talk about a little, little bit later, but I thought they completely fucked up their draft. Um, but Xavier McKinney is a little bit of a do-it-all safety, played in the box, played in the nickel, played free safety. Um, so, so he ha- kind of has a little bit of that Isaiah Simmons to him. Um, the Giants had a deal in place to trade down in the second round, except when they saw him fall there, they, they canceled it and stayed where they were and, and took him. Uh, so anytime your team comes away with two guys who you had ranked in the top 20 players of the draft or 23 players of the draft, that's pretty fucking good. Oh, yeah, I'm, and I'm completely shocked that Xavier McKinney even made it that far. It seemed like there were a lot of guys who, you know, I, I guess um, were highly rated coming in and then all of a sudden kind of dropped. I mean, there was sort of that, you know, you had T. Higgins kind of lead it off and um, Gross Matos to the Panthers was kind of a shock that he went that late. I know there were a few others. Um, obviously, Antoine Winfield was another one that people thought was going to go. So you you kind of had that um, even even Stefan Diggs' brother, you know. So you had that kind of trend that was kind of weird that players just dropped out of nowhere, um, and that was one of them that I thought the Giants really hit home. I think you know they they missed that that safety. The, the Giants always had that um, you know really good safety in the back. Whether it was I know Seahorn transition from cornerback to safety. You had um, you know a couple other players obviously step up and then you know at the safety position. So. Hope, you have to hope that this guy comes in and, and can play, um, you know, competitive football right away. I mean, obviously the defensive backs of Alabama as a Jets fan, um, you know, I get a knot in my stomach even thinking about it. And usually it's, uh, you know, who knows, <laughs> because they have such a stout defensive line <laughs> and such a stout linebacker core that sometimes the cornerbacks are just looked at as gods when, when they, when they go in the NFL, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, they were actually average players and the defensive line was actually the shining stars of Alabama. Um, 
So you never know, but yeah, I mean, at, at safety, all you have to really do is this guy to perform at the level he did to Alabama, and it, and it should be a really good pick. And again, early second round pick. Um, it, when I look at this, it was a lower risk, very high reward pick because of where his draft stature was. To your point. Yeah, they say he fell because because he ran a slow forty time at the combine, and I look back at that and I'm like, yeah, but he pulled a hamstring doing it, like so. You know, he obviously wasn't right when he ran that 40 time. And then the Alabama Pro Day got canceled, so he never had the opportunity to run at his Pro Day. And and I, I guess I'm, i I got to be thankful for that because if he ran at his Pro Day and he ran a blistering 40 time, there's no fucking way he's there in the second round. So I don't put a lot of stock into that, you know, into the combine anyway. So I think that, that if that's the reason he fell because he ran a slow 40 time when he pulled the hamstring at the, at the combine, you know, so be it, right? Um, and then, you know, over to the, the jet side, uh, this was, this was an amazing second round scenario because the jets were sitting there and Denzel Mims had fallen to them. And, you know, he was sort of like the last guy on the board at that point in that sort of second tier of receivers, if you can call it that I I sort of had the first tier is as, uh, you know, Lamb, Ruggs, and Judy. And then I thought there were eight guys who I was thinking to myself, okay, these, these next eight guys are all in that second tier, and it comes down to, to preference. And, and, you know, a lot of receivers went early, and he, Mims was sort of like the last of the, of the second-tier guys sitting there for the Jets, and I'm like, wow, that's great that he's still sitting there. They're going to snatch him up. And I was stunned when Joe, when Joe Douglas traded down. I was like, oh, this is fucking stupid. He, he needs a receiver. You got the last receiver sitting there. How could you not take him? And then he trades down and gets another third-round pick, and the guy's still sitting there, and he takes him. So, obviously, Douglas was playing chess, and I was playing checkers. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the one of the first times that I can remember in a draft where I just kind of – I just celebrated out loud. Um, how how that all rolled rolled you know came out and, and came to fruition. I mean, I couldn't believe that. To your point, I mean, there were a lot of people pissed off that the Jets would trade down to begin with because um, you had Mims sitting there. People were like, really, like this is the guy. Like, really, you're going to trade down? And then how it played out for them to get a third round pick and Mims was just great. I mean, the comp on Mims, I think, um, which you know. You never know, but I, I heard a lot of uh, uh, Kenny Galladay comparisons, which she'll take in a heartbeat, uh, especially as a late second-round pick. Um, you know, a guy that is – guys like this, there's two ways to look at it, right? They fall they fall in the draft. They can either take their ball and go home, and maybe it hurts their confidence, or they can use this as a tool and say, you know what, fuck this. I'm better than, you know – Ray Gore and all these other assholes I got drafted in the first round. I'm going to prove it. And I think that's where he really came out and shined on his post-draft interview um, where he basically said, look, like I should never be taken. I should have never been taken in the late second round. Um, so now I'm, I have a chip on my shoulder. I have something to prove, you know, and then you have, you just have to hope that, um, you know, he comes in here and he, and again, he's, he's going to be a rookie, right? You expect some growing pains, obviously, um, you also expect growing pains for the fact that he'll probably see a lot of number one corner coverage, which, you know, it's not ideal, uh, especially with the roster we have. But 
it's going to be expected unless unless he just completely flames out in training camp, which you don't expect. But from a draft perspective, it was surprising. And, you know, you couldn't you can't help but love the pick. I mean, there's nothing you can say. No Jets fan can down that pick, especially the way it played out to get a to get a second, third round pick out of it where this team has so many holes um, and if, to be able to fill that with another player in this draft that is considered a deep in a lot of positions. It, it was a huge win by Joe Douglas. So, so let me, it was a huge win to pick up another pick. So let me, let me, let me say about Denzel Mims. I think, and, and I'm not a Jets fan. I think he's going to be a really good player. So, so let me throw just a couple of basic stats at you, right? Six, three, four, three, 40. Okay. The knock on him and the reason that he, he fell apparently into the low second round is that his route running is not as polished, supposedly, as some of the other guys in the draft. And to me, that's like eminently correctable. That's the most correctable thing. Like if a guy is 5'10, you can't teach him to be 6'2. If a guy runs a 4'6, you can't teach him to, to run a 4'3. If a guy is 6'3 running a 4'3'8 and has production in college and the knock on him is like, well, his route running could be a little bit crisper. Like, okay, so get him with the wide receivers coach and get him to work on his route running a little bit. Like, like that to me seems like not a reason that, that a guy with those stats and that kind of production at, at, at a school like Baylor drops to 59. I mean, I, I just thought – I thought both the Giants and the Jets just shined in that second round. Um, so I was, I was pretty pleased with, with how that turned out. Now, the third and the fourth rounds are, are kind of, I think, for both teams where you start to have some question marks. Um, for the Giants, our third round pick, Matt Peart, another offensive tackle. So if there's a, any knock on the Giants in this draft, it's they didn't do anything to upgrade the pass rush and they didn't do anything at the center position. But I sort of get why they went offensive tackle because they don't have a right tackle right now. And Nate Solder is obviously a deteriorating player with one year left. He won't be here after this year. And so you need two tackles. And so you go get two tackles. And, and I'm totally fine with that. Pierce, though, um, I really like him, but there is a split opinion and we should acknowledge it about him in the scouting community and in the NFL executive community. Everybody loves his measurables. Everybody loves his, his height, his arms, the way he moves, how fluid he is, but he absolutely lacks the strength to be an NFL player right now. He got started in football a little late in his life. And, and so he, he, uh, doesn't have the play strength that uh, you would want in an offensive lineman, that you need an offensive lineman in, uh, in the NFL. And to me, and I want to get your thoughts on this, to me, that's like Mims's, you know, root running. Like, he's going to sit on the bench for, for a, a year. My thinking is an offensive tackle can get stronger, right? You get him in the weight room. Um, you know, sometimes you can't fix, te- fix technique, Eric Flowers, but strength – you really should be able to fix. Do you agree with that? Oh yeah, hundred percent. And especially at his size, um, you know, he and he only weighs like three ten, right? So like, he could easily put on another forty pounds, thirty pounds of muscle, and be okay. 
Uh, I don't think there's any issue with, you know, putting on more weight and more strength on him. I think, you know, I, I, when I saw that pick, the first thing that I thought of was Jason Pierre-Paul because he seems like a kid that obviously didn't begin playing football um, in his career, kind of came in late, you know, shined when he played in the short uh, span that he played. Um, Again, you know, getting the all ACC selection. So I thought, um, I thought it was very similar to that. Now, whether or not it's going to pan out that way is a different story, but um, you know, I think this is a project and I think there's going to be, to your point, uh, a parallel to our discussion, I think, with the Jets and Giants when it comes to projects and development and developing players as we go through these rounds, because it seems like a lot of the players that the Jets and Giants took are raw and will require a couple of years to see if they, you know, what they become. Whereas when you look at other uh, draft picks in the third, fourth round, a lot of guys are just, oh, well, they have amazing speed. So, you know, they'll, they'll grow into it. I mean, like to your point, yeah, you can't teach speed, but if they don't have anything else, I don't think they're going to be anything special. But Yeah, the, the thing is, though, that, that Pierre, he doesn't strike me as, as much of a developmental pick because, because he's polished. Like his, his technique is good. He's really fluid. His hips are good. He's got all the measurables. He sort of like needs to develop one thing, which is strength. Um, so to me, he doesn't really seem like as much of a project as a guy who, let's say their feet aren't good, or let's say they have technique problems like Eric Flowers did, that you might never get fixed. The guy is 6'7", he's 316 pounds. He's like kind of skinny for 6'7", right? Like he can put on weight to your point. Yeah, so, that's true. I, 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 guess, I, I guess for me, um, there's looking at putting on strength, but also looking at you know, working in that body too, right? Getting used to the strength, getting used to the NFL um, with the play, you know, with 350 pound guys tossing their bodies at you. So I feel like you can put on strength and who knows, he could even put on 30 pounds of muscle in one year. I'd be surprised, but he could. But then also now getting used to that extra weight, getting used to that body mass, um, you know, and that's that was the concern if you remember with, um, you know, some of the wide receivers we discussed, right? Like Judy and, and guys like that who are a little bit skinnier probably had to put on weight. So how does that affect the rest of their body? It's sometimes it just, right. it adds that, that lower, some, some extra pressure on a lower body. And, and you just get concerned of what that, what that means for the player. Yeah, that's true. And we should, yeah, I, that is a good point. And we should note about Perry that he already put on 40 pounds um, in, in college between his freshman and sophomore year to get up to play strength at UConn. But you're right. I mean, at some point, you know, he's so fluid and so quick. If he puts on 40 pounds of, of you know, muscle, does he lose a step? I thought it was really interesting when, the, when, when Dave Gettleman was talking about this pick. He, he said he's somebody who our coaching staff was really interested in working with. And to me, that was sort of like a little bit of coded language for we don't feel like the coaches at UConn got everything out of him that they could have gotten out of him. And we think there's room for him to be coached up. Like, I've never heard anybody coming out of Alabama in a Nick Saban program. People are like, oh, yeah, we're excited to get our coaches with this guy. Uh, because, you know, everybody has so much respect for Saban. So, so I don't know if Gelman meant to take a shot at UConn, but, but the way he said it and just sort of like his tone when he was saying it, 
I don't know why, but I immediately like like sort of what flashed into my head is they don't think he's been he's been coached up to his potential. Uh, so I thought I thought that was really interesting. Um, you don't. I mean, they obviously said it positively. He wasn't like the UConn coaches blow, and therefore we don't think that. They were like our coaches are excited about. It, so obviously they're not going to throw anybody under the bus. But I wonder if there's some thought of, you know, we got to get this guy with some NFL coaches and, and work him out a little bit. So turning to the Jets, they had two third rounders, um, and I and I have very different opinions on these two third rounders. I really liked Ashton Davis. I'm not a big fan of the Jabari Zuniga pick. So tell me what tell me what you think about those two guys. So when I first saw there's a lot so there was a lot of frustration with the fan base when you first saw Ashton Davis's name picked. Obviously, he's not known um, to a lot of people. It came out of kind of left field. I think a lot of people thought Josh Jones was going to go there. So to your point, like you know, Matt Peart was taken by the Giants um, a little bit later in the third. I thought that um, you know. Josh Jones from Houston would have went to the Jets there. I, I was surprised when they didn't take him. I think there was also discussion from Jets fans that why aren't we not trading up to take Christian Fulton, the cornerback out of LSU, um, after we took Mims, that being that we just got a third rounder, can we can we just trade a fourth rounder to now get Fulton and move up back into the second? So there were a lot of um, back and forths, I think, with Jets fans. So the more I think about Ashton Davis, the more I like it, right? So he doesn't He's not going, he's not Jamal Adams replacement. He does not play Jamal Adams position. He is, he can be used in a, as an ex safety, which means that, you know, if, if Jets fans are familiar with the name Rontez Miles, um, he'll be taking over his position, position. He'll also be supplementing Marcus May in a few different packages. Um, he could also play corner. This guy is an athlete. That's what he is. He is an athlete. He can, he will alleviate uh, Jamal Adams to play closer to the line so he can do more blitzes, which is great for our pass rush that was non-existent last year. Um, he can help Jamal Adams. When Jamal Adams plays on the tight end, um, Ashton Davis can drop back and play the deep routes, deep routes. So I really like this pick. I thought, you know, looking at Mel Kuyper, and again, I don't take, I don't put a lot of stock in Mel Kuyper's um, stats, but he had this kid listed as a, thir- as a number three overall safety which I was surprised by when I looked at it. Um, all, for, from all the conversation I'm hearing, if there were pro days to your point, Ashton Davis would have flew up the ladder. Um, he might have been an early second rounder, you know, right where the Giants took their pick uh, with Xavier McKinney. So uh, I think it was I, – I, when, when you talk about steals of the draft, I feel like this has to be in the conversation. We'll see how he pans out, but this kid – you know, another point when you met with Matt Peer, right? He did not. He did not play a high school ball that much. He played college ball because he wanted to get. He wanted to go to California for running. He's a hurdle. He's a 110 meter hurdle runner. Um, he probably could have made the Olympics as a hurdle runner if he if he really wanted to. Um, he's that fast. And then when he they put him on the football field, as a, he just tried out. They put him on, and all of a sudden he was making impact plays from day one. The guy flies all over the field. If you saw his hit hits, he reminds me of John Lynch with his hits. I mean, the guy is like a, a bowling ball. Um, so I am really uh, excited to see this guy in the football field this coming year. Hopefully he'll pan out. Uh, but I agree. The Jabari Zuniga pick was a little puzzling. Um, you know, I, I think, again, when we look at some of the players – 
Joe Douglas had something in mind here with this draft that he wanted to take guys that showed flashes of brilliance and then could put that kind of package it into a, a bubble or whatever you want to call it, give it to Greg Williams and say, all right, here's your guy. This guy is an explosive player when he wants to be make this an everyday occurrence, you know? So it's one of those guys where I think the potential was too much to pass for Douglas, probably I'll put it that way. Um, but again, you know, when you're a Jets fan, right, you see a guy like Lloyd Cushenberry still there on the board, right? You see uh, a few different wide receivers that maybe we could have taken and saw, you know, uh, like Brian Edwards or Lynn Bowden, who were still were, were highly coveted. Um, and maybe, you know, let's let's take a shot. We don't have a ton of wide receiver debt, so let's take a shot. There's Darrington Evans, Evans from Appalachian State, who we're familiar with. They're, they're in the same, you know, they're pretty close to us. And, and that guy was a really good player for a small school. And a guy that carried Appalachian State to a a bowl, a winning record, and almost you know a, a top tier bowl. Um, so there are plenty of guys on the board that the Jets could have looked at. So yes, I am I am surprised by this pick. This seems like it's going to be sort of a rotational project. Um, when you look at the defensive line depth, there had to be something that needed to be done. You know, there's obviously a conversation that. Uh, Jadavion Clowney is still interested in the Jets. Whether the price is there, will we'll, you know it's remain to be seen. But honestly, if if um, if he's not going to be signing with the Jets, they had to do something. And I think this, I think Suniga yeah. is fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't like this pick at all. I mean, the, to me, the knock on the Giants draft is they didn't do anything at defensive end and they didn't do anything at center. The knock on the Jets draft is I think they, I feel like they went a little bit off the rails in some of their mid round picks from. From 79 to 125 with Zuniga, LaMichael Perrine, the running back, and James Morgan, the quarterback from, from FIU. Those three picks right in the middle of the draft, I, I wasn't in love. I didn't like any of them. I, 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 the tape on Zuniga, I mean, can't even say his name. He, I mean, you're right. He, he flashes at times. I mean, he has some really good plays, but, but he was way too inconsistent. I mean, he disappeared for way too long. And, and, you want to take a flyer on the guy on a guy like I get that, but I thought that the third round was just too early to take a take a flyer on him, um, and I don't like I don't like the running back pick in Perrine. I I don't think he's a special running back. I mean I, I think he's fine. I mean he's sort of like jack of all trades, master of none. But but to me that was a little bit of a throwaway pick, and and so was the quarterback pick. You know James Morgan out of out of FIU. Like okay so. Maybe he's going to develop into into a backup quarterback. Um, I, I didn't like those picks. I thought the late third round and the fourth round Jets picks were not um, were not good. Uh, but then I thought they got back on track. I really like the the Cameron Clark pick, and I really like the Bryce Hall pick, and those are their, their other fourth and fifth rounders. So, so I thought they got back on track. Um, I really like Bryce Hall. I think he's I think he's going to be. I think he's way better than a fifth round pick. I don't know why he he lasted until he did. Um, and so, you know, overall, I thought the Jets had a pretty good draft. Um, but, but there were some mid round picks that, you know, I guess, I guess you have to give Joe Douglas the benefit of the doubt, right? Like you said earlier, it's his first, it's his first year. And he seems like he knows what he's doing. unlike you know, what's been the case for the Jets since the beginning of time. So 
I guess I should give him the benefit of the doubt, but but I did not like those picks. Uh, I don't mind. Yeah, that. I mean, I, I, I'll disagree with the fact that you had to see what we were throwing out last year, right? So you look at a guy like, and again, I don't know if it's Perrine or P. Ryan, or you'll find out probably whenever Al Michaels gets that, you know, when he says <laughs> it. But um, I, I think I think he's so again, Perrine, right? P. Ryan, team captain of Florida, offensive captain, um, is a great. He's great with catching passes. He's okay with running. He was never a lead running back, which is fine. He's not going to be on the Jets anyway. Um, but when we were throwing out Montgomery last year, he's this guy should be better than that. Montgomery is washed. Um, this guy will he'll be behind Le'Veon Bell. He can learn from Le'Veon Bell. Uh, again, he has a good attitude, good head on his shoulders. I'm fine with it as a backup running back. You know, you're not going to do much better in the fourth round than, than getting you know a guy like that, especially from a, a university that's still prestigious in Florida. Um, James Morgan was puzzling. I didn't like it either, although I've read up on it, and apparently people are saying that he's probably one of the only quarterbacks in this draft that you actually could develop. Um, apparently he is a student of Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, the kind of gunslinger mentality. His accuracy is god awful. Again, you had a point earlier, right? You could teach accuracy in some cases. You could tell him take a few miles per hour off the fastball and see if maybe you could throw it a little bit better than that. Um, so they could. No, oh, I think accuracy is the hardest thing to teach. I think I think you know, big arm is also hard to teach. But I think on a quarterback position, the guy fucking airmails it around. I don't know that you could teach him. Accuracy. Well, I don't think he's as bad as Hackenberg. I think he's, but I think it's it's still a question mark. He did have a he didn't have a bad accuracy percentage in in uh, FIU, but it's FIU, right? So you don't really know what he's going to bring to the table in the NFL. It's just he is a developmental quarterback. So now, do I think he's better than Falk? I think I would be better than Falk. So I think as far as a backup running back, <laughs> a backup quarterback. You know, you would not. Let well, me, let me just say for everybody, he would not be better. I think I could probably throw it more than you know, ten to fifteen seconds after I get the ball in my hands. But I mean, you know, that's that's a different conversation for the day. But I, I will agree with you about the last three picks from the Jets. Love Cameron Clark again, team captain, yeah. UNC Charlotte. The kid was a, a tackle. He is going to be slated as a guard for the Jets, which we desperately need. Um, actually, they're saying that this kid can actually compete for the starting position day one. Which for a fourth round pick, you'd you'd sell you know anything for that. You'd sign up for that tomorrow. Uh, Bryce Hall agreed again. Team captain, Virginia uh, had some injuries, had some injury concerns, but seems like he's a bright kid. He's a really good player. Um, this was a guy that was the lead, one of the leaders on defense for Virginia when he went out. Virginia's defense went to shit. So you know, again, I think this will be a, a really good pick for the for the Jets, especially with no defensive back depth. And then uh, Braden Mann. You know, I know people are like, are you kidding me, punter? Number one kicker slash punter prospect in the draft. He could be a place kicker. He's a huge, t- a big time punter. C- comparisons to Shane Leckler. Um, from from everything you've seen, the, everybody loves this kid. So, from a, you know, we've had some good punters there in our days. But for a guy that is a young kid who can really grow in the system, I'm really excited about this pick as well. People, people are down on, on kickers and punters in the draft after Aguayo kind of as – I mean, of course, he was the second rounder. But, but after, he, after he kind of fucked up his draft, everybody's like, why are you taking kickers and punters? But I don't think it's a terrible move in a late round if you really think highly of the guy. Um, back to the Giants, their fourth rounder, uh, Darnay Holmes. This guy's a, a feisty little fucker. That's how I, I refer to him. He's a 5'10 cornerback. He's a slot cornerback. And he gets up in everybody's face, and he he's just going to compete for the slot cornerback role, which we which we really need. Um, 
we don't we don't have like a true slot cornerback. I mean, Julian Love can play there a little bit, and Corey Ballantyne can play there a little bit, and Grant Haley can play there a little bit. But it wasn't a position of strength. So you go out and you get a and you get a guy like this. I I think you know he's a tough kid and and he he fights for the ball. I really like that. And and that kind of tracks their fifth round pick in Shane Lemieux. He's a guard who's going to cross train at center a little bit. I don't think he's ever going to be a center. I really think he's a guard, but he's another you know feisty you know tough minded guy who you know started sixty two games over four years. I think he missed like one snap in his entire collegiate career because his shoe came off. Right, so he he's he's durable to say the least, and and he's a tough a tough kid. So those picks, you know, I don't mind. I thought the the Holmes pick. I think he's going to come in and, and compete for a starting job as the as the slot cornerback in the first year. I, I think a slot cornerback, nickel cornerback. I think of that as a starting job in today's NFL because everybody's throwing the fucking ball all over the place. So to me, um, you know, he has a great opportunity to come in and start from from day one. So. So overall, you know, like like we started this conversation with, I really like the both the Giants and the Jets um, drafts overall. Uh, I think that's the first time in a long time we can say that. So I'm I'm very pleased to be able to say that. Uh, before we move off the draft, I want to talk about some things, some of the bigger stories, non-Giants and Jets related that came out of the came out of the draft, and and the the biggest story to my mind is the Green Bay Packers and their first round pick where they decide to go with Julian Love, the quarterback. Now, think about this for, for, for a second. The Green Bay Packers were, were one game away from potentially going to the Super Bowl last year, and they've got a glaring need on their roster for weapons for Aaron Rodgers, particularly at the wide receiver position. And they've got a first-round pick, in a, in a draft class that everybody agrees is deep in wide receivers, and there's some good wide receivers in this draft. There's no question about that. Everybody agrees. You're as sure as you can be. And they go out and they draft Aaron Rodgers as a replacement. This makes no fucking sense. Do you understand this? No, it doesn't make any sense. Now, the, the, the conversation is coming out now. And, again, now things are being leaked because, um, obviously, this was a puzzling, puzzling decision, especially – 20 minutes before that pick, Aaron Rodgers is on television basically stating that, oh, you know, we really, really need some offensive help. And we really need, like, maybe a wide receiver, um, maybe, you know, maybe an athletic tight end for the first time in my fucking career. Uh, you know, maybe something that can help me out. But they go with love, and now the conversation is basically slating, well, we feel that love is ne- the next Patrick Mahomes, which that is asinine. The Patrick Mahomes wasn't the next Patrick Mahomes when they drafted him. They didn't know he was going to be that good. So you can't state that Jordan Love, who, by the way, they could have probably could have easily fell into the second round if you saw how quarterbacks were being drafted this, in this draft, um, was going to be the next Patrick Mahomes. That is asinine. And it was just a level of thinking with the Packers draft this entire this, the, the entire day and the, the, over the over the weekend. It made no sense. It, it made no sense what what the course of direction was. It was almost like the, the, the GM and coach were on different wavelengths and the GM was kind of drafting for the future. Um, and it was like, well, you know, you have a team that to your point was in playoff contention this year was there were 13. Yeah. They were, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Super, Super Bowl contention this year. They were in the playoffs. Like 
they were they should have gotten the number one seed. Like you could have added to that. You could have given Devontae Adams finally a second piece since you know Jordy Nelson's left the group. You know, like right. you could have given a tight end since Jimmy Grant flamed out. You could have you all right. If right. you want to draft running back, you could have went running back there. Like you could have done a number right. of things, and they didn't do any of it. It was puzzling, puzzling how love is the pick there. Yeah. Like if you if I mean, there's only two directions you can be going as an as an NFL franchise. You can be trying to win the World Series, the Super Bowl, excuse me, World Series. You can try to win the Super Bowl this year, or you can be rebuilding. Right. That's it. Those are the only two choices. The only two things that you can do. The Packers are in an obvious, let's try and win the Super Bowl in Aaron Rodgers' next three years while this window is open. If you're going to, if you're going to draft for the, for the future, blow the thing up. If you don't, if you, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying, I mean, first of all, it's idiotic to blow up a 13 and three team that is probably an offensive weapon or two away from, from the Super Bowl and maybe winning the Super Bowl. I mean, as stupid as that is, Keeping the band together and making another run and drafting uh, the quarterback of the future, who, if everything goes to plan, isn't going to sniff the field for three years, is it, it, it absolutely mystifying, baffling. It makes no sense. They should be ashamed of themselves. So that, to me, was the most inexplicable, the most inexplicable choice in the entire draft. The second most inexplicable choice in the entire draft, and for a lot of reasons, has got to be the Philadelphia Eagles, another quarterback, taking Hurts in the second round to sit behind Carson Wentz. Now, I mean, the Packers pick is idiotic, but at least, you know, Aaron Rodgers is 36. Carson Wentz is a young quarterback. I know he's had some injury trouble, but he's, you know, in his fifth year, right? There's another team that, could certainly be competing for the division title. How do you justify taking Hurts and sticking him on that team when there's already a little bit of a locker room problem with some guys not backing Wentz and pining for the days of Nick Foles? And and you go out and you and you draft a second round quarterback to sit behind him. Do you understand that one? I think it's back to the comp thing. I think these people, the execs, the scouts, the GMs, overthink themselves. Um, now it's coming out now that the Eagles are comparing Jalen Hurts to Russell Wilson. It's, you know, I, I don't know how they're getting this intelligence when all they really had was their playing career and the, the combine. I mean, you know, how they all of a sudden can decide how this, this quarterback is going to be the next Russell Wilson. This quarterback is the next Patrick Mahomes. Now, apparently Jalen Hurts. Oh, well, we also, we drafted him. Yes. Okay, we think he's going to be the next big quarterback, which is bullshit because Carson Wentz is your next big quarterback. But, but right. besides that, well, like he'll, he'll be he'll be the wildcat quarterback. The wildcat quarterback, like so he's going to be on the field three plays potentially a game. Yeah, it's a second round pick. Let's say he is Russell Wilson. Second round pick. Let's say he is Russell Wilson. How the fuck are you ever going to know that, right? Like, like Carson Wentz has got five years at least four years of potentially playing at a very high level. So if this guy never gets on the field because Wentz plays well, you just set the pick on fire. Like, it, it, I, I don't, well, know, I don't went, understand. Carson Wentz should have 10 years. That's the thing. Like, I, he's 27. Yeah. It's not – I mean, you're talking, we're talking about Rodgers right. going to replace at 36, 37. 
maybe even 38. Who knows? Breeze is leaving the league at, you know, 42. Brady's still playing. I mean, right. Wentz, yeah, Wentz has knee injuries, but those guys, he's he not a runner anyway. So as long as he stays in the pocket, yeah. that's why you have to start drafting offensive linemen, as we discussed with every single team. But, yeah, for them to go quarterback, I don't know what the hell we're thinking there. To, to me, the Eagles had a disastrous draft. In the first round, they draft Jalen Rager, who I had as a second-round talent, who in his senior year of college, you know, he had about 600 yards plus or minus receiving yards. And, and to put that in perspective, CeeDee Lamb, who the Cowboys took like five picks earlier, I think had 1,500. So an extra 1,000 yards receiving CeeDee Lamb over Jalen Rager. And they're like, yeah, but we think he's Deshaun Jackson. Like, okay, maybe he's fast. I mean, but those are the only two things that, that those guys have in common. So to me, their first round pick is reached a little bit with, with Rhaegar because I think he's a second round talent. And then you come back and set your second round pick on fire. I mean, that's just an absolute disaster of a draft. And, and they're, they're also talking about Rhaegar. They're like, well, he didn't have good quarterback play. Like, get the hell out of here with he didn't have good quarterback play. 600 yards receiving. Like, if, if I mean, if the guy's a Division One quarterback, he can throw to an open wide receiver. Get open. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear, you know, your first-round pick, like, hey, our first-round pick didn't have the stats because. That's, that's something you say about your third-round pick. That's not something you say about your first-round pick. Oh, I agree. Yeah, well, you know, and, and this was the whole thing, right, with Joe Douglas, and people are saying how the Eagles are kind of missing Joe Douglas here. Um, they're not really sure, like, who, who they can pick and that kind of stuff. So I feel like that is probably the – it's probably what's going on, right? It's probably – they don't have enough staff. Maybe the scouting department was overhauled, but it's pretty interesting as far as the the way they were drafting. And this is a this is the same team who thought Orsega Whiteside was a big deal, right? Who thought all of the wide receivers they bring in, they have the the running backs that they brought in to kind of you know cycle in, replace Sproles, replace all of these guys, and that, you know they can outthink the league. And it's it's it seems like they're outthinking themselves. And I I agree. Like yeah. they, they had. Justin Jefferson, who people thought he was a first-round pick, he's fine. You know, who, who knows? I mean, you know, these guys, like, they're – the guy from – you know, he's an LSU player. Um, you think he'd be fine, but I don't know. It, it just seems like some of these teams – like, it seemed like the Packers and the Eagles were the two teams of this draft that just overthought themselves and just wanted to chase whatever – something whatever thing they were chasing. Maybe they think the Chiefs are just too good now and they can't – there's no way they can win unless they can chase whatever the Chiefs' formula is, and it seems like that's what the Packers and Eagles are trying to chase. It's it, like okay, but you have Aaron Rodgers, right? Like you, you don't have Patrick Mahomes, but you have Aaron Rodgers. Like, what are the odds that Julian Love is a, is a substantial upgrade of, over Aaron Rodgers? I think it's zero percent, right? At least in the next three years, I think it's zero percent. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I to me, there's no way to explain it. I agree with you. Those are the two teams. And thank God the Eagles are one of the two teams because as a Giants fan, you love to see it, right? Like the, the Eagles are, uh, you know, having a terrible draft in my view is exactly what you want to see. After the Giants having a great draft, that's probably the second best thing that you want to see. So, so I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I, was, I was laughing historically because I have a really, a really close friend. One of my best friends is an Eagles fan. And after the Rager pick, you know, he was like, eh, all right, you know, we needed a speed guy. 
I kind of, I kind of, you know, would have liked to see him in the second round, but like, I kind of get it. After the Hurts pick, my phone just like, like it's just like there were just buzzes of all cats text messages coming across, like one after another after another from him. This is block text in all caps about like how upset you are, and then you go on Twitter, and I saw some of these videos from these Eagle fans just absolutely freaking out over that pick, and I really got a, a very good laugh out of that. I probably probably uh, more than Karma should have let me. Um, all right, so we're gonna take a break here for a minute. We'll be back, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about some some Mets and and some NBA and potentially some UFC if we've got time. But all right, welcome back. So we've we've talked about the NFL draft, and now we're moving on to to the Mets. And I just want to set the stage here a little bit. So Steve Cohn had a deal to purchase the Mets for $2.6 billion back in January and February of this year. And the reason why I, I just assumed at that price that the deal included SNY, the Mets network. And the reason why that's important is because the Mets as a team lose $50 million a year. SNY, the network that carries the Mets, makes between 100 to $150 million a year, depending on the year, okay? So I thought anybody paying $2.6 million for an asset, it would have to be a money-making asset, not an asset that was losing $50 million a year. Well, apparently, I was wrong. The Steve Cohen deal did not include SNY. So as we now know, that deal fell apart, allegedly over the requirement of the Wilpons, that they retain control of the team for five years after the sale and after they received the $2.6 billion. Now, Cohn didn't want to do that because I, I, I suppose that nobody who spends $2.6 million for an asset, billion dollars for an asset, wants somebody else in control of that asset for five years. So that's where the deal fall, fell apart. And it was the second time that the deal, a deal to buy the Mets fell apart. The Mets are still shopping themselves. They're they're basically got a for sale sign around City Field, and they've engaged you know various investment banks and advisors to help them find a buyer. And they haven't been able to, at least to this point, find anybody who's interested in buying just the team at anywhere near Cohen's two point six billion dollar number, which kind of makes sense. I think it was a vanity purchase for him. I don't think he was buying it to make money. So. So now I'm hearing reports that A-Rod and J-Lo are interested in buying the team and putting together a financial, you know, a billionaire to back them financially to buy the team. And I think that that would be a complete and total disaster. If there's like the last guy in the planet I want to see own the Mets is Jim Dolan, but, but A-Rod and J-Lo have got to be in the bottom five. Why, why can't we just sell the Mets – to like, you know, your normal average run-of-the-mill billionaire. Why do we got to sell it? Why do they got to think about selling it to somebody like A-Rod? Is this the, just the Will Ponds, you know, like getting their last dig in at Mets fans? Like, haha, we don't have a team. We're going to sell it to an asshole like A-Rod. I mean, what's going on with this? Yeah, I, I, well, we had this conversation, um, you know, a few, a few podcasts ago. It was, you know, I don't think they want to sell. I think this is all for... The fans, 
just to say, hey, we're looking, uh, can't really do much. Look, you can look at every sports league, every owner who really wanted to leave, they get a, can get a deal done in two months. I mean, look at what happened with Steve Ballmer for the Clippers. Look what happened for Mark Cuban. Look what happened for the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres. You know, the guy, they didn't want the team anymore. They found a bidder in like a month and a half. You know, it was between Donald Trump um, and I forgot the family who actually runs it now, but they had bidders left and right. So I don't think the Mets actually want to sell the team. I think it's all, um, you know, grandstanding. I, I think it's it's basically, you know what, we understand the frustration of the fans. We will look to move on to see maybe if there's a better if this is a better group out there. There's never going to be a better group out there because at the end of the day, um, the Wilpons want to hold on to the team, I think. Anyway, I, I agree with you. Uh, celebrities should not be getting involved in sports. <laughs> I, 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 And again, okay, well, should oil barons? It's a little bit different because a lot of times what they'll do is things for their celebrity friends and they'll turn the team into a circus. Um, I don't think it it belongs i think mark cuban is probably the most subtle of a celebrity you can get and even he crosses the line too many times when he's arguing with referees and throwing tantrums on the sideline you can amp it up times a hundred if j-lo's out there doing concerts every time the seventh inning stretch is happening or if a-rod's out there you know like it's it's just it's not going to be good and then on top of that a-rod and j-lo have the audacity and I say this as a person who, who doesn't really give a shit about the Wilpons, probably looks at them as like pieces of shit for what they what they did with the Madoffs and things like that. But um, for the audacity to offer $1 billion to buy the Mets, like wh- what sports team nowadays are you buying for a billion dollars, let alone a top four sports team and a New York sports team? I don't care what the Mets have been spending in the past 10 to 20 years, whatever. That's irrelevant. This is still a New York metropolitan sports team. Any any billionaire or any investor worth their salt can see the benefit of coming in here and saying, you know what, the Mets are generally spending 60 to $70 million in payroll. Well, we want to be the damn Dodgers now. We're going to fill, fill this damn stadium. And guess what? City Field doesn't mean shit to me. Uh, I, I'll find another state. Like any uh, Anybody can come in and do that. But for them to come in and say, well, we're going to just do a billion dollars. It, it, the, the message to the fans is, oh, here we go again. We're going to have a billionaire take over for another billionaire who's putting in a frugal offer of a billion dollars, which means you know damn well they're not going to want to invest in the team if they're only going to want to buy the team for a billion dollars. The optics are shit. And to, to compile that and to topple on it, oh, it's J-Lo and A-Rod that are – you know, partnering with some random billionaire that are going to now own the team. It's, it's, I, as a Mets fan, I would be so pissed off by this whole thing. You know, it's, it's, it's been a circus. The Wilpons are really conducting the circus right now because, again, they could have sold fucking three years, five years ago. They just don't get, they don't, they don't want to. They obviously want to have a controlling interest. If it's not in the team, it's in the sports, it's in the TV uh, rights, it's, it's in another, you know, it's in the media, right? It's something that they, they want, always want, uh, they always want their claws into something. Right. It's just never going to happen. And I, as a Mets fan, yeah, if I were you, I would be pissed at, pissed. at, what, at what you're hearing. I am pissed. I'm, I'm really pissed because I mean, I mean, one thing, the, I mean, the Wilpons have in recent times up the spending, the, the team used to be, you know, 
down in that 60, 70, 80 million dollar range. Now they're 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 absolutely spending, you know, money. They're in the top 10 in in payroll, but the team is you know losing 50 million dollars a year because they haven't spent it smartly and they haven't filled the stadium. And that is what it is. And so you're right. It's sort of like, you know, the the Dolan thing. Like you could sell the Knicks, but he's still going to own MSG because he wants the venue. And then you're you know, you've bought the team and you still got to deal with this fucking imbecile who now owns the stadium that you play in. And he's a difficult pain in the ass who, you know, is going to be a problem and you're going to have fights with him because nobody gets along with him. And he's going to be bitter at you because you're the one who took over the team. Right. This this thing with the Wilpons is that on a lesser scale, you're going to buy the team, but they're going to own the network like, come on, just if you're going to sell 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 the team sell the network sell the whole thing for one price and get out you know the the problem is you're right they don't want to fred wilpon and especially jeff wilpon don't want to sell the team it's the minority partners who want them to sell the team and i think to to some level it's major league baseball who would like to see them sell the team because they're always in a precarious financial situation they always have hundreds of millions of dollars in loans coming due that they're not sure how they're going to meet. It's always like, oh, we're going to sell 4% here. We're going to take a new loan. We're going to get a new credit facility. But they never just seem financially secure. And it would just be in everybody's interest if they just got out of the way. But they can't because apparently, you know, Jeff Wilpon doesn't have anything else in his life, I guess. I mean, he, he like, if he didn't have this thing with the Mets – like, I don't know, he would sell cars. I don't know what the guy would do, but but he, you know, at the point where they sell the Mets and SNY, like, that guy has nothing to do. I mean, you think he would just be happy, go to an island, find some chicks, you know, who you can pay a whole bunch of money to to bring them down there in bikinis and spend your days on a beach and just get the hell out of there and watch the games on TV. But, like, nobody's hiring that guy to do anything other than, like, run a car lot if the Mets get sold. So he doesn't want to sell the team. And it's just, you know, as a, between being a Mets fan and being a Knicks fan, the ownership, the, the shit that we go through with ownership, I'm sick of it. And, and it really pissed me off, you know, in terms of what you said earlier. Like, at least, you know, there was a chance the Mets were going to sell the team. And I'm like, okay, we're going to get some competent ownership going on here. And then it's A-Rod and J-Lo and their million or billion-dollar bid. And I'm like, it hasn't gone well with Jeter in Miami, right? Like it just hasn't. And Jeter isn't nearly the piece of shit that A-Rod is. So it's like, what are we getting ourselves into with this? It's, it's, and, and I, I kind of compare and not from the, the history perspective, obviously, but I kind of compare the Mets to the Cubs a lot with that whole like lovable personality, right? The underdogs, the scrappy team, you know, it's something that's marketable. It's something that, that's why MLB is looking at this team and saying there's potential. Obviously, the Mets have been in the World Series in the past in, in this century. Um, you know, it's it's something that we can easily market, and they're in the New York metropolitan market. They are in actually New York. They are in Long Island, right? They're in Queens. They're on. They're in Long Island. Um, so it's not like the whole oh well, they're in New Jersey. No, this is an actual New York team. Yeah. So it's it's and they got there's so much stadium. Yeah, exactly. A and a stadium that people like to go to. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Like people, you know, you have like the, 
the outfield that's they always have really good food there they always have like the dj stuff they got things going on a lot of stuff for kids it's a family atmosphere so if they have all of these things working you know and the one thing that's not is the ownership to your point and it's just i think the mets are getting to a place where they actually are putting a good team together finally they are building the blocks they're putting pieces together whether or not you agree with all the pitching decisions it is what it is but you know they it looks like on paper at least they're building towards something it's just they can't get away from this story they because can't get away the, from the story and and they're also a little bit snake bitten you know they are putting something together and honestly i really like what brody van wagner has has done with this club i think you know they were a bullpen away from being a real team last year, right? Being in contention, like Edwin Diaz and Familia don't both blow up last year. That's a that's a ninety five win team. That that could be pushing a hundred win team, right? Alonzo's great. The stadium's great. They're trending in the right in the right direction. Um, and then you got the shit with ownership, and then Cindergard goes down for the year, and now you've got COVID. Like they just can't ever seem like even when everything like like starts tracking in the right direction. They they can't ever seem to put it together. It just feels like it's a snake bit team. I agree hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's and it's a shame because like I said, there there's good building blocks. It looks like there's a good foundation in place to your point. Um, it's just, you know there's a lot of history there, obviously, and it goes back to Bernie Madoff. Um, and what you know, and I think the whole puzzle piece of shit before that, but that really just highlighted all of the things that kind of crashed down on top of them. And then ever since then, it's been a battle of just, oh, you know, yeah, we're, you guys are right. We made some poor decisions. Look, we'll sell, we'll sell. We're, we're going to look at different bidders. And it's been a circus ever since. Yeah, it is a circus. And and I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely sick of it. I, I really, you know, I thought Steve Cohn was going to be, was going to be the right solution, right? I, I thought like, you know, he's a businessman. He's, he's not a celebrity. He's, you know, he's a billionaire. He's a fan, which I think is the most important thing. Like, say what you want about Cuban. I love Cuban. And I know, I know some people don't like him, but he's a fan of that team. Like, the mistakes, quote, mistakes that he makes about, you know, stepping over the line and all this other stuff, they come from a place of passion because he's so passionate about the Mavs that I think sometimes he, like, his emotions, you know, maybe get the better of him a little bit about the team, which is so funny because as a business guy – I think he's pretty, I think he's pretty calculating, but, but, you know, he just loves that team so much that he, he steps over the line occasionally. Um, and, and, and Cohen loves the Mets, you know, he's, he's a fan, he's a New York guy. Like he would have really been perfect and who knows, you know, the Wilpons are always about 15 minutes away from getting in financial trouble. So maybe what happens is, you know, they can't find anybody near the 2.6 number. Maybe, uh, you know, they can't find anybody, period and maybe what happens is they they circle back around to to cone and these guys work it out and and finally you know they they get out of the way here and uh boy that would be great if they did but but who knows if it's if it's going to happen i'm just i'm just kind of sick of the saga like i just you know if you're going to sell sell let's be done with it it's a perfect time the season's on hold get the transaction done don't sell the celebrities a rod and j-lo sell to an actual you know, owner who, who, you know, people respect and like, let's get this knocked out. So the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, a little bit about the NBA, you know, the NBA is in this position where they're like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, 
make a decision here, guys. It's it's May. The NBA Finals is usually in, in mid-June, so you're talking about six weeks left. And the NBA is still dilly-dallying around this, like, are we or are we not going to have a season? And it seems to change, like, every day. You know, the owners, some of the owners and GMs came out, you know, about, about a week ago, and they were like, no, we think we should cancel the season because we're worried about the older coaches and staff, and even if we do it without fans – and then LeBron kind of pushed back on that a little bit, and he was like, nobody wants the season canceled. And so I feel like there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not hearing. How do you, what do you think – I mean, what should the NBA do at this point, Jim? Should they, just, should they just call it? Should we just be done with it? Well, so there's two things to this. So um, I think they should call it. I'm, I think the reason there's some players fighting back and probably the commissioner fighting back is because – and, again, I don't have all the details in front of me, but – one of the things I heard a long time ago is that if they finish out the year um, or at least try to make an attempt to do a playoff run, they get a decent amount of money. And by that, I mean a billion dollars plus that is for player sharing, um, which is why LeBron, because he's, and look, I mean, I like, I respect LeBron as a player, but let's, let's get, let's get things straight. LeBron is the biggest snake that's out there today uh, when it comes to money. You know, he's you saw the stuff what happened with him in China. Um, I think he used Kobe Bryant basically for his own self worth and brand. Like I, I don't respect LeBron as a person, but you can respect him as a player. But that, that's besides the point. But that's why LeBron always chimes in with this shit because it was oh LeBron doesn't want to finish the regular year. He doesn't want to play in front of the fans. He doesn't think that's respectable. You know, he's a he's a he's a guy that gets juiced up in front of fans. He needs to get you know he needs that atmosphere. But then. On the other side of his fucking mouth, he's like, well, you know, maybe we should play because uh, it might be good for the, the community. Oh, you're fucking full of shit. You, you heard that there's a, a billion dollars plus on the table. That's why you want to play. Besides that point, I do think they should stop this year. Now, I'm, I was surprised, and the second part of this was the fact that they're looking at December to start the new NBA year of 2020-2021. Because I'm like, all right, well, that's a little bit late, um, <laughs> you know. And I don't, and I don't know what I don't, I don't know what this mindset is. You have, and this is where it's confusing with COVID, right? You get all the shit that's going on with COVID. I'm not trying to argue. I'm not on here arguing what COVID is or whatever. But when you look at MLB and the the shit that they're doing to try to get this league up in June, you have the Senators, you know basically pleading with them to, to put a plan together. They're batting on doors in Florida and Arizona and Yankee stadium and trying to figure this thing out to put to put something together, which who knows if they could even do it, but it's going to be the same thing if the NBA did it. Now don't give me the bullshit about, Oh, it's outdoors versus indoors. That doesn't fucking matter. Come on. Like I, you're talking about an empty stadium. You know, if you, if you test the guys, you test the guys, it shouldn't matter. So you have that, you have the UFC, Buying a, an island to put a, to put an event together, but you have the NBA who's like, well, if we can't get it done this year, then we might as well just wait till December. So that just means to me, like, you want to get it done this year for the money, and then next year, well, it doesn't really matter when we play because we're going to get our money regardless. Because probably their contract reads that if they get fifty percent or sixty percent of their games in, then they get paid hundred percent regardless. So they're not going to be in a rush to start, which probably that's what that means, but. I just find it hilarious that, you know, baseball is pushing 
so hard to get something done in May or June. But the NBA is like, well, if we don't get something done this year, yeah, we could delay till next year. No, no problem. It's like, so you just see what's going on. All of this is about money. You're right. It's about, you know, it's about how you can get loopholes. Yeah. What is, what is the best way to do this without, you know, they don't give a shit about PR. They don't give a shit about hurting people. They don't give a shit. They can, Greg Popovich could die in the court. They would play the next day. You saw what happened with Kobe Bryant. They don't give a shit about the, pl- the players or coaches. Kobe Bryant fucking died in a plane crash. They had games going on that night. Yep. <laughs> like, they, they don't care. So no, I don't want to no, hear this woe is me shit. Right. It has to you know. be about money. Because if you're talking about delaying the start of next season, that's a tacit admission of like, yeah, we don't know that this is going to be under control by October, November when, you know, when we're supposed to be playing the early part of the season. Okay. Well, if you don't know that, that, stuff is going to be good to go by November and back to normal by November, such that you're already talking about delaying the season, then scrap the last six weeks of this season and just be like, so obviously in the next four to six weeks, we're not going to have everything up. You're right. It's got to be something about like, there's just money on the table for the players. And so they're resistant to the idea of, of finally like giving up those dollars and, and calling it. But but at some point, you know, you got to just – look, the whole world is shut down. You know, these guys are making millions and millions of dollars. Even the, the 12th men and the, and the rookies are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. There's going to be a next season where you're also going to make hundreds of millions of dollars and millions of dollars a year. I would say, you know, just call this thing at this point. Just say, you know, the NBA is done. At least with baseball, you know, you have – until October, right? So you've got months and months and months to try and put something together. But the NBA, this season is six weeks from being done. I think, I think you know, I'm tired of the back and forth. Just say, we're not going to have a season this year. We're canceling it. That's the end of it. That's what I think the move is. I agree. And I think that's – and I think every league, when you, know, you saw it when there was that whole commission put together by all these, you know, leagues – about reopening sports and when is the appropriate time to do it, you thought there would be maybe a plan. Now, I'm not talking about the leagues colluding with each other, which wouldn't matter anyway, but you know, maybe there would be a plan in place like, hey, guys, like baseball is going to be the um, basically the first line of defense, right? Like They're going to come out there and we're going to figure out what happens because they're outdoors. Even though I think that's bullshit, they're outdoors, whatever. Because um, golf's going to do it because they're outdoors. Golf should have been doing it already. They should never cancel. Yeah. That's besides the point. No, that's um, but then, you know, baseball is going to go ahead. But then, you know, all of, the, all of these indoor sports leagues, right? You have hockey saying, well, we, we're looking at Canada and we may just have, have this in, in Canada um, and have it in four arenas and just have pools. You know, you're hearing the same sort of thing with baseball. They might just have pools at four or five different stadiums. But basketball just seems like they're not – the NBA is like all over the place. Like, yeah. You, it's always like, well, yeah, but we can go off in May, but we'll just do the eight teams. Um, well, actually, you know what? Maybe we'll just do the four teams. Maybe we'll just do the top four teams in each division, uh, and then we'll just do it that way. Well, maybe we'll just go, you know what? No, this is a serious issue. COVID's serious. We're, we're going to actually have to delay this maybe until 2021. It's like, guys, come on. Exactly. Like, You've got to get your stories. And there's, by the way, the, all NBA the, could, the NBA can start in July. Like, it doesn't fucking matter. Right. You're in an indoor sports league. Right. Like, that's what people don't understand. And by the way, MSG – you, know, you talk about the Staples Center, right? MSG. These guys would get on their hands and knees and plead for anything to be done in their stadiums and their arenas. Like, they have nothing going on. So it's not the case of logistics. It's not the case – who gives a – fuck the players. If the, if LeBron James says he's not going to play, fuck them. You have 
15,000 other guys you could take out of college and people would still watch because it's sports. You, know, you, you saw WrestleMania is getting fucking ratings at ESPN. <laughs> you know, so like you could pull guys out of the stands and play basketball and people would still watch. So that's not, it's besides the point. You know, it's, it's about what makes sense for the NBA when it comes to money. And that's what they're trying to decide. And that's, it's, it's, it's completely glaring. And now people should take stock of this because it's like, you know, again, football from whatever you, whatever you think about the draft, at least they came out and said, you know what, here's the football, here's the draft. We're going to do it. We don't give a shit. And we're going to start in September. We don't give a shit. Here's Dana White. You know what? We get it. I'm going to try my hardest to put something in front of you, right? Like this is for you. This is for the fans, even though it's all bullshit. It's whatever. It, it's, it's the message. Basketball, it's no message. There's no, it's, it's, it's always the same thing. It's chasing the money. And I always thought, you know, that the commissioner, um, at what is Adam Silver? Adam Silver. I always thought he, he was a good, I always thought he was a good commissioner when he took over, but then man, has he been really ruined his reputation as, as these fucking years have gone on when it, when it was the China issue and then it was the Kobe Bryant stuff. And now it's the coronavirus shit. It's like, he shoot, like he doesn't, I don't know what, like he, he's all for the players. It's like, dude, you don't, you're not the commissioner for the players. You're the commissioner for the league. Like start yeah. having a fucking backbone and making decisions and putting it in front of the fans so they know what's going on. Especially, especially for the fans who have invested. And, and this is another thing we haven't really talked about. The fans who have invested in season tickets who haven't given fucking their money back yet because they're still playing games and saying, oh, well, Oklahoma City Thunder might make the playoffs. So we're going to wait until that decision's made. You've held their money for two fucking months, they haven't seen a game yet because you, you haven't made a decision whether you're going to cancel the season or not. How is that fair for all the fans who have spent all this money up front for season tickets that they you're can't right. get that's anymore? The, that's the you know, so bullshit you, you, thing there is. They should have absolutely refunded the fans' money by now. The fact that they're dithering and dathering about, well, maybe we're going to do this, and you're right, they're absolutely all over the place. They're like, and and they're they're way more all over the place than than any of the other major sports that although they don't have perfect plans, have at least committed to we're going to do this or we're going to do that or we're going to try and do this. The NBA has a different story every day. It's like, well, maybe we're looking at stuff, we're talking to people. And it's like, you're absolutely right. Give the people back their fucking money. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, I, I, I don't understand that at all. It's a, it's a joke. It's like, you know, and that's – and. It just goes, it, like I said, it goes, and every fucking league is money hungry. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say like NHL's better or it doesn't matter. But there are ways you can handle this that are appropriate. Chris and I discussed Vegas, right? Aria could have told us to go fuck ourselves and said, you know what? The draft's going to happen in two years anyway. We're just going to delay your hotel for, for two years. Like they could have said that. Uh, yeah, we could have gone to court. They could have done a class action lawsuit. But they could have done it. That's the whole point. And, but that's what best, that's what the NBA is trying to do right now. And there are other sports leagues that do. I'm not trying to say that the NBA is the sole culprit of this, but there are ways to handle this appropriately. And they're, they've just they've flip-flopped all over the place. Now, and the funny part about it, this whole thing, the NBA was viewed as the, the leader in the clubhouse. Oh, look at what they did. Holy shit. The NBA canceled the season because of COVID-19 they're so responsible. They care about the fans. They care about the players. Well, then all you found out was, oh, no, because they had a shithead player who decided to act like a piece of shit and, and rub coronavirus all over people's microphones and everything else, got players sick all over the fucking league. 
that's the reason why they did it. They never released that information until a fucking days later. And then now that they did that, all of a sudden that leader in the clubhouse, you know, that that pious league that, oh, but they're, they care so much, are now flip-flopping all over the place like a dead fish out of fucking water, while, like, other leagues are stepping up and making decisions like the yeah. NFL. So the NBA looks like a bunch of jerk clubs. And again, they're, they're led – the owners are, are, you know, besides Mark Cuban, who – you, you, you want to think good things about him, but who knows? Because the Mavericks have been shit since – I know they've won one championship, that's, so that's that's a thing over Dolan. But they've also been shit under him too. So it's just – it's one of those things like do you even trust – any words coming out of anybody's mouth? I don't – you know, they have handled this so badly and, and so badly as compared to the other leagues that, that it really is a black eye on the face of the NBA at this point. Like they really um, – you know, they, they really – these guys need to get their act together. I mean, you've got supposedly smart guys. you got wealthy guys, you know, and and I don't understand what they're doing. I think I think Adam Silver has been very weak uh, and tepid in not getting control of the message and control of his people, and I completely agree with you. I think the NBA is a little bit lost in the sauce right now, and they have to uh, – they really have to – excuse me, get their act together and, and figure out what they're going to do, or at least what they want to do, what time frame they want to do it in and put out a consistent message because, you know, they're really turning off a lot of people. They're turning off the fans, not giving the fans their money back is absolutely ridiculous. And, and, you know, it's, it's just to a point right now that, that I'm really kind of getting sick of it. And I'm sure a lot of other people are too. All right. Well, that's our that's our podcast for for tonight. Remember, uh, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notifications of of when our next pods drop. We have very much uh, enjoyed talking uh, to you tonight. I, I I didn't expect us to have so many problems. You know, we got problems with the Mets ownerships. We got problems with the NBA. Uh, but you know, this COVID nineteen thing is really, I think stressing everybody out a little bit and and some people are are handling it better than others but um we will be back soon in the meantime everybody and all our listeners please stay safe out there and have a wonderful week